Good morning, friends. Before I welcome Robin up here to, uh, to bring the word to us, I just want to say a couple quick words about Advent. Um, last week, we highlighted the fact that um, we're making a curriculum available for everyone to help you plan out your Advent journeys. So Advent for us is basically counter-consumerism. Christmas is like a crazy time, tons of pressure put on you to spend crazy amounts of money and be intense and be under pressure and all of these things and miss the core purpose of this season, which is to welcome the coming of the Savior. That's our whole focus and purpose of this time is that we're going to enter another year of moving through the whole gospel. All of the key accomplishments um, and identity features of who Jesus is. And that begins for us at the coming of Christ at Christmas, right? So Advent is a season for us to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing, which feels very hard to do, let's be honest. But to slow things down, to deepen our heart awareness and engagement with Christ. We're preparing for the gift of God's presence in our messy, dirty life. And so Advent is meant to be a time where we're leading not only ourselves, but our children into a slowed down pace of awareness of God's presence. So if you didn't receive the links to that, it's a free booklet that we've purchased for you um, that we sent out a link to the church in an email. If you'd like that and aren't on the email list, come talk to me today. I'd, I'd love to make sure you get that. Okay, but also with Advent, we do a few more traditional elements in our service. So if you know me, I'm a pretty casual bloke, okay? And so the robes aren't my, like, natural inclination. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but I don't generally go, you know, I'd love to wear this just on a daily basis. So I thought it might be helpful just to explain a couple things about it. So as Anglicans, we are rooted in the historic Christian traditions, so part of it for us is that we're not just saying we're um, revamping or re-coming up with who Jesus is and what he's done. We want to be rooted in the old ways, the original ways. We want some continuity with the way we do church today with the church of old, with the early church, and with the patristic church, which is the first 300 years of the church. We want continuity with that. And so these robes started in the church because they're meant to communicate things. They're symbols. So for the, the clergy, or for anyone so who participates in the liturgical service, they would wear this white robe, and it's uh, a symbol of baptism. So it's meant to be this picture of we're covered in the righteousness of Jesus, and we're coming into his presence because of that. And then the priest wears what's called a stole, which is a symbol of their ordination, their calling, that they've been set apart for this work for their lives. They've given their whole lives to this. A deacon, on the other hand, would wear a stole that goes across their chest. Um, and so there's all these different symbols, and the reason we use them is to go, look, this has meaning. We're not just at an event. It's not just a concert. It's not a TED Talk. We're rooted in the ancient ways of the church, 
that we're devoting ourselves to the apostolic message of who Jesus is, that we have a deep love for the scriptures, and we're looking to continue his way into future generations. This is why we're Anglican. Okay? And so for many of you, I know this is new, and you're not sure what this means. And so we just want to take time throughout the year to explain some of these things. So Advent and Christmas, Lent and Easter are what's called high seasons. And in those times, you're going to see us pull out more of the traditions. And then in other times, what are called ordinary times, through the summer and stuff, you're going to see me in really basic clothing, right? And, and it's more chill. So you're going to see some of these rhythms over the, the coming months and through the year, okay? Now, I'm going to invite Robin to come up. I've asked Robin to preach this morning because she's been preparing this message both in her seminary classes um, and to preach in other churches as well as on campus. So if you don't know Robin, she works with UCM on campus doing mission and discipleship to university students, and they're just killing it. If you don't know Lydia, Lydia works with her as well, um, and Lydia kind of runs that team, and they're just, I was there on Thursday and just thinking, this is a beautiful work, and they're doing beautiful things. And so I've invited Robin to come kick off our Advent season with this beautifully Advent-themed text of Scripture. Can you welcome her? <laughs> he specifically told me not to do that. Um, did you guys feel how long that gospel reading was? How It was good, but it was long. <laughs> I appreciate. Um, I told Ryan that the longer he read the gospel, the less time I had to preach. But the reality is I wanted to convey in, I wanted you to catch in that text not just the facts of what happened, but the vibe of how they're written um, and some patterns that we see throughout Luke um, and his sequel acts. So in the first four verses, which I didn't make Ryan read, so I could have gone longer, <laughs> In the first four verses, Luke says there's already accounts about Jesus and what he did. I'm going to add my take on it. I've done some research, and I want to present an orderly account. And uh, so Ryan mentioned this came out of a class that I took um, in the summer, just looking at Luke and Acts, and looking at it um, through some literary and textual criticism, and just seeing Luke as a writer. And so you notice how orderly and attentional his, this text is. In uh, One of the ways that we see is how Luke shifts the focus back and forth from John to Jesus, back to John to Jesus to John to Jesus through the prophecy of each of their births, through their births and their childhood, and then through their ministry. He doesn't he just goes back and forth and back and forth. And um, Ryan last week was talking to us about who John the Baptist is um, and the time of when he came, that there had been 400 years of silence, of kind of a darkness. No prophets, no special anointings of the Spirit or messengers, just quiet. And then an angel appears to a priest and says that he's going to have a son 
who will be filled with the Holy Spirit, not just one day, but before he's even born. So that's the context that we're jumping into. And the way Luke structures his infancy narrative, he says, look at John. Now look at Jesus. Now look at John. Now look at Jesus. Now look at John. So there's this scholar, uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, and I tried to paraphrase him, and he just puts it just perfectly, and I couldn't do it. So um, he says that the pairing of Luke does two things, this pairing of Jesus and John. It shows us just what a big deal John was, that he doesn't just enter into this um, silence and become a messenger for the Spirit, but he also prepares the way for Jesus, which is going to be even greater than anything they've known in Malachi and before. But the second thing that this back and forth does is it highlights just how much better Jesus is than John. So the way Johnson puts it is Jesus succeeds and supersedes John. Isn't that cool? I normally hate alliteration, but I'm okay with this one. So Jesus comes after John and is kind of a bit better than John. So you think that the spirit in dwelling a child after 400 years of silence is amazing. Just wait until you meet Jesus. Luke's stylistic choices, they're begging us to compare the ministries of Jesus and John to see how amazing they both are and how much more amazing Jesus is. But we're invited to compare these details even in their birth stories. The way that Jesus will succeed and supersede John is foreshadowed, I think, even in their parents' reaction. So let's jump into the text. The angel Gabriel, he first visits Zechariah, the father of John. He's an old priest with an old wife who doesn't have a kid. They've been praying for a child. Luke says that they were a righteous couple. Zachariah's a priest, and he's doing a pretty good job at it. And despite that, they're facing this heartbreak. And then on this day, Zechariah, he gets chosen by lottery to be the priest who gets to go into the holy temple to light incense. While he's there an angel appears. I know we've heard that a million times, but like, an angel appears. (laughs) He's freaked out. The angel tells Zachariah, don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. And this season of darkness and the sorrow of childlessness that you and your wife have been experiencing, that's coming to an end. Your wife Elizabeth is finally going to conceive. I think I want to pause there just to say, like, that's enough of a miracle. But then Gabriel says, this kid isn't just going to be a joy to you and your wife, but many will rejoice because of him. He's going to be great. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this season of darkness and quiet that all of God's people have been living under is coming to an end. Many people of Israel are going to return to God because of John. And there's this mysterious line about how John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. John is going to bring revival to Israel and prepare them for the Lord. And then Zechariah asks a question. How can I be sure of this? 
So Ryan says, I usually uh, speak with university students, and because they're university students, I have very high expectations of them. <laughs> Am I right, Michaela? I have very high expectations of you guys. And so when I preach, I've got them talking to each other and answering me and raising their hands. And um, one day I would love to ask that of you guys. But I know that'll be a stretch, and it feels even like a stretch for me today. So can we just, if you could humor me, we'll take one step in that direction. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate Zachariah's question? Just in your gut. Zachariah asks, how can I be sure of this? So you can hold up your hands. You have 10 fingers. Show me some of them or shout it out. Scale of 1 to 10. Is that a good question? Nodding, I'm not letting you get away with that. <laughs> okay, Steve says 8, 10, 6, 10, 8. Okay. So make a mental note of that, how you feel about that question. We're going to jump over to Mary. Mary's not old, she's young. She is pledged to be married. Unlike Luke's introduction of Zechariah, Luke doesn't tell us anything about Mary's righteousness or her partners, but Gabriel simply calls her favored. The angel appears not to Mary in a temple, but somewhere that's not even worth writing down or taking note of. She's freaked out, just like Zachariah was. Angel tells her not to be afraid. Gabriel says God has seen her. He is with her. He calls her favored. And by this grace that God pours out on her, she will conceive and have a son. He will be great. Name him Jesus, but he's going to be called the Son of the Most High. God's going to give him David's throne, and he's going to reign in the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will never end. So at this point, we're starting to see, yeah, John turning the Israelites back to God, that's pretty great. But this Jesus guy, who's going to succeed him, will certainly supersede him. And then it's Mary's turn to ask a question. How will this be? Okay, that was just a warm-up. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we think of this question? How will this be? 12. Okay. <laughs> 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Yeah, that's good. I was going to be all timid and say, could I maybe suggest? But you guys are with me. Mary's question, which succeeds or follows Zacharias, it kind of supersedes it too. Both Mary and Zechariah find themselves in an unbelievable encounter. And in their journey to belief, they each ask a question. How can I be sure? How will this be? And maybe those questions don't sound too dissimilar. I had a little moment this morning of doubt, um, of saying, like, are these questions actually that different? Like, am I reading into things? But when we look at how Gabriel responds to each of them, he took those questions as pretty different too. So Zachariah asks, how can I be sure? Convince me. Because I'm looking at my circumstances. Not sure if you've seen my wife recently. <laughs> but uh, this doesn't seem possible. So I need you to prove it to me before I can get on board. 
And then the angel gets a little spicy. <laughs> this is my translation. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of me, but uh, I'm Gabriel. I was just in heaven, literally with God, and he told me to come down and to give you this good news. So maybe you could just sit down and be quiet. He silences them, right? Zachariah, this priest who's used to knowing all the answers and doing all the right things, he has an experience that he doesn't have context for, and he hears news that's literally too good to be true, and he shuts down. I kind of get that. And, I mean, at least he didn't laugh like Abraham and Sarah did. I don't have time to get into their whole story and all of the foreshadowing in Abraham and Sarah that's fulfilled in Zechariah and Elizabeth, but I do like to just laugh at the idea of them laughing because that's kind of just a human experience. So maybe Zechariah does a medium job of responding to Gabriel. Maybe you gave him a high mark earlier and now it's dropping because you're like, oh, Gabriel didn't like that. Me, me neither, me neither, me neither. Or maybe you gave him a low number and now you're like, okay, if I put myself in his shoes, yeah, that would be hard to respond to. Mary, on the other hand, her question, how can this be? I haven't done the thing that makes a baby. <laughs> I swear. So what exactly is your game plan here? And the angel honors her question. I've been looking at um, icons this week and just artistic renderings of this moment between Mary and an angel. I'm not a very imaginative person usually, so it's been helping me try and imagine. And what I'm picturing is Gabriel softening and maybe even kneeling and holding Mary's hands. Well, the Holy Spirit is going to descend in power. So your son will be holy, holy. <laughs> that reads better than it says. Fully holy. <laughs> He'll be the son of God. And you're not even alone. Elizabeth is already six months pregnant with her miracle because nothing is impossible for God. Mary's question is a lot like her earthly status. It's humble, unassuming, not entitled to an answer, but genuinely curious. Her question isn't just better than Zachariah's, though, and the ideal is that they both would have stayed quiet. I see her asking a good question as an example of her faith. Why is her curiosity good? It's the first step in her journey to belief. Because after Gabriel answers her, Mary consents. She says, okay, I'm all in. I am God's and I surrender to his will. She didn't come out of the gate like that. Her curiosity is the beginning of her participating in Jesus and what God is doing. Her question opens the door for her to learn more about God's mysterious plan. And Gabriel is so generous on God's behalf that he 
explains the whole situation to her as much as she can handle and offers her proof that nothing is impossible with God. Go see your friend Elizabeth and hear her story and know that God follows through on his promises. And then what do we read when Mary and Elizabeth meet up? The magnificent Mary's song. So while Zachariah has been made mute, Mary is given a song to sing. Something that my students know about me and you all will eventually learn about me is that basically all of my sermons are going to come back to curiosity at some point and highlight that. It's kind of my thing. I have always been very curious about all of the things. Growing up, I was the kid asking all the questions. In high school, um, I was very curious in particular about creation. I was a little science nerd. I don't know why I said that in past tense. That's still a a title that I embrace. I'm a little science nerd who also really loves Jesus. And I was so curious about how to reconcile these two things that I had been told were enemies, scripture and science. At that time in my life, I didn't have the word curiosity. Like, I knew that word, but it didn't have the weight and the meaning that it does to me now. And so I would label myself a skeptic. That's what people were calling me, so I might as well embrace it. But I really wasn't. I just had such an earnest desire to know God through all of his revelations. It's my favorite thing about being an Anglican now, is I get to like wear that loud and proud, that God reveals himself in so many ways, and we get to look at all of them. I have had a lot to process and uh, forgive in some of the ways that I was received. Um, And I'm so thankful. I actually want to share with you guys, like, my season of grieving that rejection is finally starting to close and heal. This might actually be, I was sensing from the Spirit this morning, this might be one of the last times I talk about this part of my story. Because it's been such a loud part of my story, and it's hurting less and less, and... Anyways, what's helped me move on is knowing, like, my friends and my mentors in that season, they really loved me and they really loved Jesus. They just didn't have context for me and my questions. That's okay. I know now my questions were actually me engaging with God, engaging with his creation and his word and being curious about how to get on board with the good news and the work of Jesus. Sometimes I feel skeptical about Christmas. This was definitely true in high school, still kind of true now. I'm kind of a Grinch. Um, Usually my coping mechanism would be to um, just shut down those questions and distract myself. Sorry, I want to be clear. It's not skepticism about the historical Jesus. It's questions about, it's skepticism around everything that we've added in the last 2,000 years. And I get skeptical about, I don't know why I can't say that word today. I get skeptical about whether I can actually encounter Jesus in this season. In any meaningful way in the middle of all this mess. And so some years I just don't engage. Just kind of shut down those questions and hold my breath 
and wait for it to be over. But what I'm learning now is that it's a lot better and even easier to um, nurture that skepticism and love it into curiosity. So, I'm preaching to myself here for a minute. Let's get curious about Christmas. Can I just tell you some of the things I'm curious about right now with Christmas? Do you think that Zachariah, when he was listening to Gabriel, when he like closed his mouth and was listening to Gabriel, do you think he thought about the prophecies in Malachi and Isaiah? Like, when do you think he caught that? Do you think he ever did watching John grow up, watching John's ministry? Um, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were praying for a child. I wonder how Mary felt about just having a kid. Forget the Jesus part for a minute. Just having a kid. Do you think she was longing for that? Was she scared about that? Was it just like so not on her radar? Here's a good one. What star do you think the shepherds followed? Do you think maybe it was, it could have been Jupiter, because that one's really bright, right? Like, that's not a star, but it, it looks like a star, and we could grant them that. Do you think tonight when I look up in the sky, I can see the same star? I don't know. <laughs> I'm curious how I would have responded if I were Mary or Zachariah. In my life, how do I see myself responding to good news? Those are some of the things that I'm curious about. And some of them I'm going to research. Like that star thing, I'm, I'm sure there's an astronomer who loves Jesus who's studied that. So I'm going to go home and Google it. And that research is non-anxious enjoyment of the revelation of creator. And some of the questions I'm just going to meditate on and enjoy them, and pray, and imagine. I just would invite you guys to join me in being curious as a way of participation in the celebration of Jesus' life. Could we be like Mary, and ask good questions, and discern, and sing, and surrender as servants, and treasure up all these things, and ponder them in our hearts? I'm nervous uh, that in all this, I maybe have explained my curiosity in an idyllic way. So I do want to be really clear that sometimes my questions have been anxious and demanding and not helpful. I'm not always Mary. Sometimes I'm Zachariah. Zachariah going mute is definitely a punishment. Don't get me wrong. That sounds like my nightmare. But isn't it also kind of what he asked for? It's proof that Gabriel is who he says he is and has the authority to deliver a prophecy. And then regardless of his doubt and his ego, Zachariah still gets his blessing. Elizabeth still gets to have a baby. John still gets to have his ministry. And that's just really good news for a skeptic like me. Unlike me and some of the people around me in high school, unlike 
Mary, and Zechariah. Yahweh is not anxious. God is secure enough in his goodness to handle all of our questions, good or bad. And if you think that the mercy offered to Zechariah is great, just wait until you see what Jesus does next.